we want to thank you for coming tonight. We're glad to see so many here. I always feel when Christians come to listen to the Word of God and respond, as the Christians do here in Garnavilla, that surely we have a lot to thank God for. Some would indicate to us that there's hardly any ear left for God's Word, and that is not our experience. We find that Christians have a great ear for the Word of God, a desire to hear it, and to learn from it, and to walk in obedience to it. So we're glad to see you. Remember the meeting tomorrow night, if the Lord will. We are taking up the seven churches of Asia, those seven assemblies that were addressed by the risen Christ in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. But before we begin to read tonight in Revelation 2, I want to read the last verse of Ephesians 6. The closing verse of the Ephesian letter, chapter 6 and verse 24 of Ephesians. Before I read it, I would like to tell you that this is the only time in the Bible that this expression is used and is found at the close of this epistle. It's a one-time only thing. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. If you have a revised version, you'll notice it says that love our Lord Jesus Christ in uncorruptness or imperishably. And that's the only time in the New Testament that expression is used. First Timothy, please. Chapter 3 of the first epistle of Paul to Timothy. Verse 14 of First Timothy 3. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, Revelation chapter 2. We have seven verses to read. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things that he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And we mentioned last night that the proper translation is lampstand, a vessel that burns oil, not a vessel that consumes itself in burning. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted, not grown weary. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Now, if that expression in English, I have somewhat against thee, seems in any way to lessen the charge, and I think perhaps we should read it as the literal rendering would put it. Nevertheless, I have this against thee. I have this. And you'll notice what he has against them. Because thou hast left, not lost, 
Thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And may God bless his precious word to us. Only twice did the Lord Jesus speak from heaven. I may be a surprise to you. God has spoken from heaven. The Father has spoken from heaven. And you remember on those occasions when the Lord Jesus was here, and God spoke from heaven regarding his delight in his son. But there are only two times in our Bible that the Lord Jesus speaks from heaven. One of those was when Saul was awakened on the Damascus road, and the risen Christ spoke to him from heaven and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And the other time when the Lord spoke from heaven is here in his addresses to the seven churches of Asia. Now, we don't have a chart to guide us, but I trust it won't be difficult for you to follow the fact that we are looking at seven assemblies in what we know today as Asia Minor. We know it as Western Turkey. It was known then as the province of Asia in the Roman Empire. And these seven assemblies geographically were located in what would have formed a rough circle, an elliptical shape at least. And although there were many assemblies in that part of the world, the Lord Jesus chose these seven because in these seven he was going to give us an overall view, a panoramic view, if you will, of the church's history on earth. In other words, he was going to give us a prophetic foreview of the experiences of testimony for God from the day of Pentecost until the Lord Jesus comes to the air to take his blood-bought people to be with him. Now, we believe that's the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars at the close of chapter 1 of the book of the Revelation. So the assembly that was at Ephesus, and the assembly that was at Smyrna, and the assembly that was at Pergamos, and at Thyatira, and at Sardis, and at Philadelphia, and at Laodicea, are illustrations, seven of them, of seven stages, if you will, seven epics, if you will, of church testimony, of assembly testimony for God in the world. Now, with that in mind, I think you'll have to see that uh, there are other passages in the Bible that link themselves with these two chapters, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Those who preach from the seven churches would quite often point out to you that in Matthew 13 you have seven parables. And the seven parables tell us of the mystery aspect of the kingdom of heaven. And of course the mystery aspect is the hidden aspect. The king will come someday and he will reveal himself in all his glory and the kingdom will be set up, a visible kingdom, a great glory and great power, a kingdom of righteousness and the prince of peace will reign. But is the kingdom now not in existence? Oh yes it is. And I'm in the kingdom. And if you're saved, you're in the kingdom. If you're saved, you're a subject in the kingdom. 
And every believer believes that. Maybe you say, I'm not so sure. Well, then why would you believe John chapter 3? Except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Oh, you say, that talks about seeing it. Well, then just go down to the next verse. Except the man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So how did you get into the kingdom of God? I came in by a new birth. And I became a subject of the king. And where is he reigning? He's rejected by the world. He's been cast out and crucified. Men said, we will not have this man to reign over us. So where is he reigning? He's reigning in the hearts of believers. He has a throne in the highest heaven. And he has a throne in the lowest heart. And the Lord Jesus is enthroned in the hearts of his people. That's the mystery aspect of the kingdom. That's what you have in Matthew 13. The seven parables of Matthew 13 correspond to seven churches of Asia. And you could see a parallel between them, although they were there. And so the assembly at Ephesus, this particular post-apostolic period, the period that came in immediately after the apostles were off the scene, this corresponds to the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, which is the first parable, as you know. Then, of course, you, you could really liken the kings of Israel and Judah to the seven churches. And if you do that, then you would see that Ephesus uh, has similarities to the reign of Solomon in it. And then there are those who have linked to it, Acts 27, that, that uh, voyage that Paul took and his companion on that ship to Rome. And you would see, of course, that this is the beginning of the voyage. But I think that it perhaps links itself with a number of other things, too. I'm not going to go into them tonight. But I would suggest to you that there are seven outstanding men in the book of Genesis. And those seven men can be seen in these seven assemblies. And, of course, the first man we would be look at would be Adam. And that would take us back to the Garden of Eden. Now, I'm not going to try to weave all that in. Uh, I would certainly need a lot more nights than I have. And uh, the meetings would go on, and uh, you would get weary listening to me, and uh, a few things like that. So we'll just try to abbreviate it as much as we can while trying to draw the spiritual lessons from it. Now, I have six things about Ephesus tonight. Remember, first of all, it's a real assembly. And therefore, it has application to our assembly. Remember that the words are spoken to him that hear it. And therefore, it has application to me personally. And remember, it is to us a picture of a certain period of testimony for God. Just after the apostles were gone to glory, the Ephesian assembly gives us a picture of what it was like in those days of early testimony for God. Now, I see, first of all, a walking Lord. He's in the midst of the assemblies, and he's walking there. And if you look throughout chapter 1, you will notice that you have his majestic person. He's the person who excels all others, who surpasses all others. He's the church's glorious Lord. And here he walks in the midst of the assemblies. He's the living one. That's what you have in verse 19, or verse 18 of chapter 1. He's the lamb. That's what you have in verse 6 of chapter 5. He's the lion. That's who is described in verse 5 of chapter 5. 
when he walks among these assemblies with divine perception, with eyes as a flame of fire, he misses nothing. And he says seven times over to these assemblies, I know, I know. There are lessons to be learned for us in ways that perhaps some of you haven't thought of. I'm thankful for all those who read the Bible. I hope you read your Bible regularly. I hope you read it in the way in which it is written, that is, consecutively. I hope you read it diligently and carefully. I hope you read it so you can meditate on it. I hope you read it for your own soul's sake, for your own food's sake, for your own sustenance, for your very life's blood. I hope you read the Word of God. But of course, we don't all get uh, the same amount of truth when we read. There's a difference in it. To some, one line of truth might be an open book, whereas some other line of truth might not be so clear to them. And therefore, we're speaking, as I told you last night, as if you didn't know anything. I know you do. So don't think I have the idea that you're a lot of simple people. I know you're not. And I know you've been over this ground a number of times lately. But, you know, there are lessons to learn from the address to the assembly at Ephesus. It's possible that some of you haven't thought of this line of things. Because, you see, the very location of these particular cities have lessons for us. In fact, the very topography of these cities, the very rock on which they stood, the location of them, whether they were high on a mountain or down in a valley, by a river or by a coastline, there are lessons to learn even from their geographical location. And of course, there are lessons to learn from their history. And that's true whether it's their political history or their military history or even their religious history. There are lessons to learn from these seven assemblies and the cities in which they were located. And of course, there are lessons to learn from the moral climate of these cities. And we're going to see that now as we look at Ephesus and at the other assemblies that are described here in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the Revelation. Ephesus was the queen of Asia. It was in a beautiful location with a beautiful harbor. Strange to say that they had a parallel to what happened here in America. They cut down the trees on the, on the, on the mountains uh, along that coastline. And when they cut the trees down, there was erosion took place. And the soil from those mountainsides filled up the harbor of Ephesus. So the city went into decline when its great inland harbor was filled up. And maybe that has a suggestion for us too. We'll look at that perhaps in a few minutes. Asia, of course, was the province of the Roman Empire. And while Asia was the queen of, of that province, uh, Pergamus was really the capital city. So Asia was really under the reign of the city of Pergamus, or Pergamus as we usually call it, and I'll try to stick to Pergamus because that's the usual pronunciation, although Pergamus may be correct. But in the city of Ephesus was a theater. You say, how do you know that? Sesto in Acts 19. But there's something that's not told us in Acts 19, and that is that that theater was about 500 feet in diameter. And it would hold 25,000 people. It had seats for that many. And that's a vast theater, even by our standards today. And of course, in that city were beautiful avenues. 
There was, a, there was an avenue called the Marble Way. And it was lined with fountains and beautiful gardens. In fact, there was, a, there was an avenue in the city of Ephesus called the Arcadian Way. And it would do justice to many modern cities. It was lined with beautiful columns and shops. And wait a minute now, when I tell you this, it was lighted almost as brightly at night as some of our modern city streets. So Ephesus was anything but a backward city. But Ephesus was the site of the temple to Diana of the Ephesians. Now I have to tell you a little bit about Diana before I go any further. Diana was an image. They claimed it fell down from heaven. You remember you read that in Acts 19? And it was an image of a mother with a babe in her arms. It was one of the mother and child symbols. And Diana was worshipped. Now in the Grecian world, Diana was a virgin. It's sad to say that when Diana got to Ephesus, she became anything but a virgin. And she became a, a symbol of evil. A symbol of immorality. A symbol of wickedness of every kind. And connected to the temple of Diana was the most licentious type of thing you can imagine. And this is what is so tragic about these, about these ancient cities. The best part of people is their religion. Isn't that right? It won't take them to heaven if they don't have Christ. If they've never been born again, the best religion in the world wouldn't take you an inch nearer heaven. But after all now, to look at it just from the viewpoint of this world in time, people's religion is usually righteous. It's usually, it's usually better than the irreligious. So people who have some religion, they usually are better citizens of the land. They're usually more honest, more upright, more righteous than others around them. But the religion of Ephesus was corrupt and vile. The very religion was so evil that it was like Sodom. What a tragedy. And that's where the assembly in Ephesus was located. And those little, those little uh, images that the silversmiths made, Alexander and his companions, who belonged to a trade guild, trade union, those little images were made out of silver, and it was a little image of, of Diana with the babe. That symbol goes back to ancient Babylon, to Samiramus and Nimrod. And if you've ever read the two Babylons, you'll know what I'm talking about. And that symbol has come down to us today in modern day religion. The mother and the child is still worshipped. But back there in Ephesus, it was corrupt. It was vile. Everything is evil. But in that temple to Diana, there were 120 pillars. They were 60 feet high. So they, they were something to see. In fact, it was one of the great wonders of the world. People traveled from all parts of the known world to see the great temples of Diana. 120 pillars. And mind you, they weren't all just stone. Some of them were encrusted with jewels. Some of them were overlaid with silver. And some of them even with gold. And those pillars were, were a great wonder. And highly, highly esteemed by the worshippers of Diana. But you know there was an assembly in Ephesus. And it was one pillar. Not 120. 
But it was one pillar. It was the pillar of the church. So I've read tonight in the three epistles to Ephesus. That's why I read the little verse at the close of Ephesians. That's why I read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then we read in Ephesians chapter 2. Those are the three letters to the assembly in Ephesus. That's very interesting. And that passage we read in 1 Timothy 3, before I go any further, even if I don't get anywhere near finished with Ephesus tonight, I want to stop and go back to 1 Timothy 3 because I think it's very important. Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy is in Ephesus. And Paul says to Timothy that men may know how they ought to behave themselves, for it isn't Timothy's behavior that's in view in verse 15 of 1 Timothy 3. It's actually the behavior of, of believers that men may know how they ought to behave themselves in the house of God. That's the name for the assembly, the house of God. Because God rules there in the assembly, and God will not have a disorderly house. And the assembly is under divine rule. It's the house of God. When you read about the house, it's what you're brought into. And I have been brought into the place of divine order and rule. And the assembly is not the place where a person does as they like but the assembly is the place where the word of God has control. And that is the church of the living God. If it's the idea of being brought into the house, then the idea of the church of God is being brought out of the world. Because that's what church means. It means called out. A called out company. So the church of God, which is used 13 times in the New Testament, always applies to the local assembly. And it is the local assembly in 1 Timothy 3 and 15. It is the house of God. It is the church of the living God. But it is more. It is the pillar and it is the bulwark of the truth. What are pillars for? Well, there are three good uses of pillars that I'm interested in tonight. You could think of others, but these three have an interest to me right now. A pillar is often used to commemorate a great deed. I sometimes tell that when I was a boy, I attended a ceremony for the unveiling of a great pillar that was to commemorate a place in France during the First World War when Canadian soldiers lost their lives by the thousands at the first gas attack that was used in modern warfare. And I was there. I was only a boy. Uh, they must have taken a long time to build it, because I don't remember the First World War, of course. But uh, anyway, the day came, a great day. It was November the 11th, by the way. And school children gathered from many, many schools around the city, thousands of them there. And finally, at the appropriate time, they lifted the great canvas that had covered this monument. And there it stood... And it was to commemorate one great deed. And still standing, and I saw it just recently. It was to commemorate a deed. The assembly is the pillar of the truth. We commemorate a deed. The cross of Christ. The suffering Savior. The work of Calvary. And that's why on the first day of the week we meet together in a simple way to observe the Lord's Supper to take the bread which speaks of his body that was bruised, to take the cup which speaks of his poured out blood, 
and we're commemorating a great deed. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So some pillars proclaim a great deed. They commemorate a great deed. The assembly commemorates a great deed. That's why this building is called the Gospel Hall. Because here the Gospel is preached. And the preaching of the Gospel is the commemoration of the great work of Christ at Calvary. And when Paul speaking of the Gospel he preached in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I told the Christians in Philadelphia earlier this week that uh, we don't worship in the Gospel Hall. And I don't think I made myself very clear because after the meeting, quite a few brethren gathered around me and said, what did you mean? Well, that's a bad mark on a preacher when he doesn't make himself clear. I apologize to them. It's the business of the man up here to make himself clear so that you understand what he means. I told them they didn't worship in the Gospel Hall. The Gospel Hall isn't a sanctuary. You don't worship in the Gospel Hall. Where do you worship then? Within the veil. You worship within the holiest of all. You worship where the blood has been sprinkled upon mercy seat. It's a spiritual worship. And we're taken into the very presence of God Himself. Into the sanctuary where the Lord Jesus has already entered as our forerunner. Well, you say, we can't go in there, can we? Well, that's what Hebrews 10 says. That's what we do when we draw near. We enter through the veil. That is to say it's flesh by a new and a living way into the very presence of God himself. And we go in there to commemorate a deed. Just as Israel's high priest went in with the blood of the goat of the sin offering and sprinkled it seven times into the sanctuary. So we don't worship in the gospel hall. It's not our sanctuary. Our sanctuary is spiritual. We don't have a worldly sanctuary. Israel had a worldly sanctuary. It was the tabernacle. It was the temple. They'll have a temple in a coming day. We do not have a worldly sanctuary. We have a heavenly worship and a heavenly sanctuary. That's why we don't call this building by any name that would make people think that this is a sanctuary. That's why it's called by the very plain, simple name, Gospel Hall. Because this is not a sanctuary. This building belongs to Christians that meet here. And it's only a building. So we commemorate the deed of Calvary. But we do more. I have known pillars that were raised to honor a name. And the only thing that pillar does is to honor the name of some great man or some great woman. Well, the assembly is a pillar to honor a name. What name is it? One name, majestic in its dignity, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We gather in that name alone. We don't belong to the Gospel Hall, we belong to the Lord Jesus. And we gather in His name, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the assembly is a pillar to honor His name. Of course, the assembly is a pillar in another way. It supports the building. It supports the structure. A great structure of truth. So the assembly is a pillar of the truth, holding up the truth of God. Regarding Christ and his person and his work and his present glories and his coming again and his future kingdom and all the truths that relate to him and his lovely person. Now, in Ephesus, there was a 120-pillared temple. But in Ephesus, there was an assembly of believers. 
who gathered together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord walked in the midst of the assemblies and he saw all that these people did. He saw their labors, for instance. And I would say that's my next point. My first point is a walking Lord. My second point is exhausting labor. Now let me look at the labor with you, if you will, because we must see this if we're going to really get the real lesson from Ephesus. You notice that we read that it says, I know thy works and thy labor. I mean thy toil. The word actually means costly toil. It means to work to exhaustion. It means to labor to your last ounce of strength. I know thy works and thy toil and thy patience. There's a sevenfold commendation here, by the way. Seven things that the Lord says about them. And I suppose if you said the work was their activity, you know, activity can be formal. It can, it can be for the wrong motive. Activity can be godless. It can be. And the Lord says, I know thy works and thy toil and thy patience. They endured. And you know, I've heard people preach this for years. And I've been in many a Bible reading where this has been gone over. And I usually raise a point. And my brethren usually say, oh, well, that's, that's right. But I, I uh, somehow or other, I, I, I almost think they say it reluctantly. If you'll forgive me for telling you that. Because you see, they usually tell us that this was, this was work without love. Because you remember in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you have the work of faith and you have the labor of love. And you have the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now all the Lord says about them here is thy work and thy labor and thy patience. And why does he say it's a work of faith and a, and, a, and a labor of love and a patience of hope? Something seems to be missing, doesn't it? But look, I want to show you something. Here's what I usually point out when this is being discussed. It says verse 3 that they did it for my name's sake. Now I can't help but believe that that was devotion. If you'll forgive me, I can't help but see in that that there was truly love to Christ. And what they were doing, they were doing in devotion to him. They loved the Lord Jesus. That's why I read the verse at the close of chapter 6. We have grace beyond all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ imperishably. Now, I'll have to tell you what that means if I can. It means unfadingly. It means without decline in the love, without decay in their affections. Tragically, the assembly of Ephesus had decayed. It had declined in its love. Because the Lord says to them, I have this against thee, thou hast left thy first love. And I'll have to point out to you that the very construction of that sentence makes the love the first thing. It says, Thy first love thou hast left. Thy first love thou hast left. And what can we understand about this first love? Well, it's the love of a spousal. It's the love of the bride. It's that true, wholehearted devotion. It's the love that doesn't have mixture. It's the love that has no 
ingredient in it that would make it anything but pure. It's the pure devotion of a heart that is all for Christ. Did you ever have a love like that? I believe when people are saved, the love springs up spontaneous and they love the Lord Jesus. I wasn't thinking about my love to him when God saved me. But when I look back, I could tell you the exact moment when my heart first went out to Christ. And I could truly say, I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. Tis thou who art thee, Lord Jesus is thou. We're talking about those days after the apostles were off the scene, and there was a decline, and they had left their first love. They hadn't lost it. It means to fall from a height. It means a great descent. They had left their first love. There are other signs here that things were wrong, even though amid things that were right. And I have a reason now for coming to this. This is to me the great lesson to be learned here. I see the Lord walking. I see these Labors that were to exhaust him. But I see an abandoned love. A love that has been abandoned. A love that is languishing. And I believe in this, there's a solemn lesson. I hope we learn the lesson tonight. And I hope it is impressed on my heart as it has been as I've looked at this. You see, there were those who came in among those early saints with false teaching. And false teaching and false living go together. As a rule, as a general rule, uh, bad behavior is always preceded by bad teaching. And maybe bad behavior is preceded by a lack of teaching. Things that should be taught. Don't, if you're a dear young believer here tonight, let me tell you with all affection for you and desire for your blessing, do not rebel against teaching that would stir your conscience and correct your ways. Because whenever there's a lack of right teaching, it isn't long until there's a lack of right behavior. That's a principle of this Bible. Belief and behavior go together. And if you, if you can point out someone's bad behavior, I would guarantee that if you knew the facts, you'd find bad belief that's behind it. So there were false teachers came in. Some said they were apostles and were not. The Lord says to this assembly, Thou canst not bear evil men. Why, that's good, isn't it? Thou canst not bear evil men. Thou hast tried them that say they are apostles and are not. That was good too, wasn't it? Well, wait a minute. You can do a right thing and do it in a wrong spirit. You can hold doctrine correctly and truly and yet fail to hold it in love. And that's a solemn lesson for us. And let me go over that again with you if I can. It's possible to hold correct doctrine. It's possible to be sound in the faith. It's possible to hold to every truth of the New Testament and yet not be in a right condition of soul. 
I have more to say about that, but let me go back for just a moment. All zeal for God, all zeal for truth, if it is not motivated by devotion to Christ, has no value in his eyes. And I am saying this with great care and after great consideration. And I believe this is something about which we need to judge ourselves. For brethren, I believe the truth of the assembly with all my heart. I believe with all my heart that God's great desire is the preservation of godly testimony in a collective sense. Baptized believers who gather stands on the wall. Is that the I don't believe so. I'll tell you that much tonight. I do not believe so. But we'll try to look at the identity of the angel and we'll try to look at the identity of the overcomer if the Lord helps us perhaps tomorrow night or in nights to come. But I want to notice this at the close of the words of the Lord Jesus to the assembly at Ephesus. He that hath ears or he that hath an ear let him hear what spirits up unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. Oh, that'll be a wonderful tree to see. It was in the paradise of God there in Eden. And a man tree that the cherubim with the flaming sword was put at the entrance of the garden. But those who overcome will have a right, a divine right, a holy right to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And before I close the meeting, I want to tell you what the paradise is. What is paradise? Well, you say it means heaven. Exactly. You mean paradise isn't heaven. Well, I didn't say that. But there have been times when paradise wasn't in heaven. Is that strange to you? There have been times when paradise was not in heaven. Where was it then? It was a time when a paradise was in the heart of the earth. And I'll tell you what made it paradise. The Lord Jesus was there. And whenever he ascended up to heaven in his glorified manhood, he made that the paradise of God. And where the Lord Jesus is will be paradise for the saints. And the tree of life is in the midst of the paradise of God. So what he is saying is, the overcomer will see him, will be with him, and will eat of the wondrous tree, the fruit of the tree of life forever. God help us to be overcomers like those that the Lord speaks of in this letter to the Ephesians. Shall we pray? Yeah.